Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Emma Aviette, a PhD student of English literature and current postgraduate web and communications intern. In this episode, I was lucky enough to interview Bahar Fayegi, a second-year PhD student in the Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies Department. I had the chance to ask Bahar about her incredible work on ways that Afghan refugee women in Iran help their families survive and thrive despite enormous difficulties. Her work aims to analyze and identify women's everyday resistance practices against complex power systems and the ways they improve their economic situation and mental state. Beyond that, I got the chance to hear about Bahar's incredible time with the United Nations, working as both a humanitarian affairs intern with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs and a protection intern with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. I had a lovely time speaking with Bahar, so thanks so much for listening and enjoy! Welcome to Beyond the Books. Thank you so much for joining me, Bahar. It's great to have you today. Thank you for having me. Um, So one thing I really just wanted to ask is a little bit about your background and how you came to the University of Edinburgh. Okay, so I was born and raised in Tehran and, uh, you know, living in the Middle East and living in Iran, politics and international relations were uh, always like a part of our daily life, daily conversations in every family gathering. They talked about issues. So uh, from childhood, I was really interested in politics especially with the events of September 11 and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, which were our neighbors, uh, and our problems with the U.S. I was like all, all, always interested to know more. And so because of that, I studied politics in Tehran. And then for my uh, education, I moved to England, University of Warwick, to get a master's in international relations. And then I ha- I moved to the U.S., to Washington, D.C., to get another master's in international service. And so at the end, like with my Ph.D., although I might say like for my master's, I applied to the University of Edinburgh to get a master's in international relations of the Middle East. And I was accepted, but then because of the visa issues and everything, I didn't have enough time and University of Edinburgh starts early September. So I had to choose to go to Warwick. Uh, so at the end, like, so I was already familiar with the Department of uh, Middle Eastern Studies and I really wanted to go there. So for my PhD, uh, I applied there and hopefully, <laughs> like gladly, I got accepted and I'm really happy to be here now. Amazing. What year are you in again for your PhD? Uh, I'm a second year. Second year. Okay. So this is like your first real year without COVID being, you know, keeping us home all the time. Yeah, exactly. Because actually last year uh, I studied online. So I just moved here in September. Um, This is my first year physically being here. Oh, how are you finding it? Uh, Great, great. Like Edinburgh is magical and really beautiful. And I love the university, the atmosphere. Uh, Yeah, it's really great. 
So one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was looking into your background was that I saw that you spent time as a humanitarian affairs intern with the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Could you tell me a little bit about that experience? What was it like to work with the United Nations? Yeah, it was amazing. You know, I've always liked to work uh, in NGOs in the United Nations, just being able to help people, especially help refugees. So this part of my experience uh, at the office for at OCHA, like Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, like uh, by the time I was there, Iran, many provinces of Iran were hit by floods and there was like a disaster. So what we did actually was like coordinate the aid that was being given. Uh, to the provinces hit by flood and like basically gathering information, status reports of what was really happening on the ground. And uh, basically we were like coordinating different agencies present also in Iran. Like aside from the United Nations, there is like a Relief International and Norwegian Refugee Council, which are, which also are were involved in helping people who were affected by the flood. So uh, we gathered data and uh, we created this uh, central database that uh, everyone could refer to. And uh, we wrote like reports on uh, what was happening. But in normal times, like if there there's not like a disaster going on, but in general, you know that Iran is really prone to natural disasters, floods, earthquakes, and this kind of stuff. So the presence of Ocha is really needed and necessary in Iran. But in times that there's not a disaster going on, like the, the office of Ocha usually holds trainings for for like Iranian staff like that are involved as first responders, like firefighters or like uh, flood responders. So um, the responsibility of this office is like to hold trainings and update information, manuals and uh, all this stuff. So it was really it also really helped me to get uh, to get to know how uh, this aid work is organized and coordinated and uh, actually like how much aid in general Iran is uh, getting from the international community. And that was interesting. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I know you also worked as a protection intern with United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. How did these two experiences differ and what did you gain from them? Yeah, so the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, is like a big agency in Iran because, you know, Afghan population, like the refugee population in the country, we almost have like 4 million uh, refugees in Iran. But of course, like uh, they are not, all of them are not recognized as, as refugees. And it's only like 1 million of them that are officially recognized by the government. Oh, wow. So, so UNHCR has offices around the country, like in big cities in Tehran, in Shiraz, in Kerman, and other uh, like border areas that are necessary. So my uh, work was in the office in Shiraz. And then uh, through this office, uh, really, I got to know what was happening with refugees because because before COVID happened, like, of course, refugees could uh, come to offices. They were being interviewed. And of course, they came to ask for aid and to tell um, UNHCR what was their problem. So I got the chance to actually get to know refugees face to face. 
and get to know their problems. Of course, it's like it's like a pity that UNHCR also can help only the recognized refugees and uh, like about two and a half million people that are not legally in Iran are like uh, are not getting any sort of aid uh, from UNHCR. So the, only those that are recognized. The, of course, also their operation. They help them with the, their healthcare. Like, you know, Iran includes refugees in the national health program. So by paying a premium, they can access this. And UNHCR actually pays this premium fee for the most vulnerable, like 100,000 vulnerable refugees. So they don't have to pay the premium, but they can access healthcare in terms of education, like they build schools for communities. And then they also give a consultancy, like in terms of women who were um, exposed to um, gender-based violence, they can come for, for sessions. So all kind of services that they offer, but there's a lot that more that can be done. But it sounds like an incredible program. That's amazing that you got to interact with. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a really great experience for me because, yeah, that's my goal also in the future to work with refugees and for NGOs that, uh, that work with them. So it was an um, experience that really opened my eyes. And because as, a, as an Iranian, I think most of our population, we have been living side by side Afghans, but we don't know much about them and what's happening and uh, our government's approach to them. So I get, I get to learn many stuff, but of course it's sometimes also psychologically a bit difficult because you see like sometimes families come, they have many problems, but there's no help that can be done either. So that's also like, you cannot help everybody. It's like a lot of people and a limited budget. So. Um, it's also difficult in that way. Did that draw you to your current research topic today? Could you give a little summary of what your research topic is now? Yeah, exactly. So that experience and my previous experience led to my research topic that I have now, which is everyday resistance of Afghan refugee women in Iran. So I felt like there's a gap of research on Afghan refugees in general in Iran, and especially women and what they go through on a daily basis. Uh, this uh, experience at UNHCR really made me interested more. So I wanted to know more and do research on these women because uh, their lives are so difficult. They face many restrictions from the government, from their family members, from the society in general. But yeah, but they do amazing jobs. And like there are women, like single women that raise their children, their work, and they do an amazing job in raising them. So I just wanted to do more research on these women. Of course, also, like when I was a kid, we had an Afghan that was a guard in our building. So yeah, like, you know, Afghans are usually working in manual jobs. They're only allowed to do these sort of jobs. So my a close interaction with uh, this person was like he was such a kind person but I remember back then I was a child that he gave his money to my mom so my mom could put it in a bank like I remember this sort of stuff that because he didn't have access to any bank he couldn't he couldn't save his income so he had no one to trust but but imagine that there are like a lot of Afghans that trust Iranians with their monies, with their incomes. But then, of course, there are many Iranians that betray them. So imagine what would happen if my mom 
uh, took the money and didn't give him back, it would be like he didn't have access to any legal. So he couldn't tell the police because they would say, well, he didn't have any evidence. So they're like in such a vulnerable position. We had, in, uh, of course, we had interactions with them in this way. And in the university, I had Afghan friends. So yeah, like I was really interested in their lives. But this internship really made me want to do a PhD on that. So I know that that kind of relates to what a lot of your research for your thesis is about, which is focusing on how to integrate Afghan families into Iranian society. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on the importance of integration when it comes to refugee communities. What difficulties arise when they are prevented from fully integrating? Yeah. So, you know, Afghans basically speak the same language as as us, and they are, like, culturally the same as us. They're Muslims. And the refugees that are, most of the refugees, like a high number of refugees that are here are Shia, uh, like Hazara Shia. So even in that term, uh, they're really close to Iranians. Uh, like culturally, in terms of literature, we basically share many poets, writers because of the Persian Empire. So culturally, they are really close to the Iranian society and uh, um, they have assimilated in terms of their way of dressing, their way of talking, like their accents, uh, their food, even their everything. Like they have assimilated to the Iranian society. But of course, the restrictions in place prevent them from fully integrating, fully accessing uh, like Iranian citizenship. So basically, what happens is that for 40 years since the conflict, like since the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan since 1979, Afghans have been coming to Iran, but they have not been given citizenship status. And even, as I said, like the ones that have a refugee status, it's a temporary status, like they have temporary cards that need to be renewed every year. So even the children that were born and raised in Iran, they haven't like, most of them haven't even seen Afghanistan their whole lives. They are not given citizenship status and they are treated like as still as these temporary guests. So we have like second, third, fourth generation of Afghans that have been educated in Iran. They go to schools. They like, they, of course, they live in Iranian neighborhoods. They are basically Iranians, but they are prevented from having a national identity number and having an Iranian identity. So that's a really difficult for these families because, because imagine you have been living here for, for 40 years. You're deprived still of many basic rights. For example, when they are not giving a residency, like a permanent residency status, of course, uh, their access to employment, their access uh, to education and healthcare also restricted and limited. Although uh, in terms of education and healthcare, like there has been great improvements in their lives because there has been fluctuations in Iran's policy, educational policy for Afghans, but mostly uh, children that were born in Iran were able to go to school and then go to university. They are like highly educated. Most young girls that at least that I have been in interaction with, they have university education. But when it comes to employment, 
only men are given work permits and these work permits are in uh, like manual jobs so uh, manual and difficult jobs for example i don't know uh, burning trash uh, yeah in really hard conditions so women are not given work permits so all these educated women like law graduates political politics graduates they cannot they cannot take any jobs related to their education but with the social media for example they offer consultancy online but uh, of course they cannot practice for example legally but they offer consultancy at least to their fellow afghans or like for example they have been involved in many art uh, activities like literature like they write there are many afghan women writers they write books they publish it and or like they sell like their paintings online so social media i think they ha- has given them other opportunity to earn an income and to be um, active but yeah in general in terms of integration they have integrated into the Iranian society but legally they are prevented from uh, many from accessing many rights there are uh, restrictions of movement in place for example if you live in Tehran and your refugee card was issued in Tehran for traveling to another province you need a permit even for leisure purposes even temporary and then there are like uh, forbidden areas that they cannot uh, live there or they cannot travel there for example like border towns they are like prohibited uh, totally for afghans uh, and some provinces some cities that like is justified based on national security and public interest ah uh, for example they are not allowed to buy or sell property so so even if they gather money to buy a house they cannot buy it in their own names and uh like what has happened like is that many buy for properties like in the name of their Iranian friends their house is on their name but their trust yeah some are trusted they they live normally but of course at some point some also uh, are cheated by for their belongings so also access to basic stuff for example a driving license or a sim card or a bank account also there are like restrictions in place and you know for different uh, as i said like we have 1 million with refugee status temporary residency cards but then we also have about 500,000 afghans that have visas like there are temporary visas but they are renewed each year um or like every 6 months so there are different privileges for different uh, um identity documents for example visa visa holders they can access driving licenses easier but amayesh card this residency refugee residency card is more difficult for them to access but then when it comes for example to a sim card uh, like a amayesh holder can get a sim card easy Uh, but then a visa holder cannot get it that easy so so there are different different restrictions for people who hold different residencies or visas when i was studying like actually it was really difficult to figure out my way through all these restrictions so imagine people that are living on a day to day basis and have to face these problems so what are some of the ways that the afghan women in particular are affected So in my study for women like I see that Afghan women 
are affected because they are women and they are Afghan, of course. The restrictions they face, uh, like there are governmental restrictions that I said, like it's general, like for all the Afghans. And then like they have these, like, of course, we have patriarchy and uh, limitations set by family members and also like from the society and societal norms and standards they, that as a woman, Muslim woman, they have to abide by. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So, uh, so women face restrictions from different angles and uh, like they have to deal with different power structures. As I said, like uh, the government, their families, and in the society with the norms and standards that there are for like a decent woman, decent Muslim woman, like a good a good mother, a good housewife, all these expectations that they have to deal with. So uh, I think uh, this situation for women is extra hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of mm, their access to education, employment, um, health care, they have, they have had to fight uh, all the time, like uh, since the beginning. Like what amazes me is that uh, the way they deal with the problems, because as I said, my research is about everyday resistance. I'm not looking for these organized action, political actions, public actions against oppression, just uh, small actions that women take on a daily basis to deal with different, with different powers, with different limitations. For example, like a great uh, example is that uh, when the government introduced restrictions on education of Afghan children, because at the beginning it was free for them to attend Iranian public schools and they accessed that. But at some point, like in the 90s, the government wanted to encourage the um, Afghan repatriation. So they go back to their countries and they, they thought if we put limitation on these privileges, uh, that might persuade them to go back, especially education, which became so important for Afghan families in Iran. So uh, the government like introduced fees for children. And then, uh, of course, illegal children could not attend at all. So what women did, like mothers, they thought like, no, our children need to be educated. So what they did uh, is that they asked Afghan girls that they were educated in Iran the years before that they, they had access to free education. So we had this generation of girls that were educated and now could become teachers to the Afghan children. So the mothers started this movement from their houses. So in the neighborhood, they like they asked like a girl, like, can you teach our children? Like this started in their houses from few children and, and then it grew and grew. And then they had to like rent a place for so it can accommodate even more children from the neighborhood. And then from this, they established Afghan self-regulated schools. So now like they still exist and like they get money from donors. They are scattered around different cities and then children that don't have uh, legal documentation go to these schools and get educated by Afghans themselves. That's incredible. Are there any other areas that you're looking into of how women are actively um, showing resistance in Iran? Yeah, so right now uh, I'm currently working on Afghan women writers. So um, there are like, I have read a lot of books written by refugees in Iran, like girls that were born 
and educated in Iran, like they have published books. In these books, uh, you know, they share their experience of living with identity crisis, living with governmental restrictions, and actually they are raising awareness about their situation in Iran. And what you can see is also like such a gender awareness that they have, like against uh, patriarchal norms of our society, against male family members that limit them, their access to education or other like employment outside of the house. Like uh, I feel like all these writings are a protest against all these restrictions. For example, yeah, they're through fiction. Uh, they raise their voice and they say they say the unsayable. They say what's really happening in their lives. It's amazing, of course. I haven't had the chance to interview women yet to go more into detail about their daily lives. But I'm sure like there are many instances as I've read in the stories, like maybe it's fiction, but of course I think it's their experience that they share. Yeah, there are many instances that they go against, girls go against their families to attend university, to, to be able to educate themselves, to work outside of the house. Uh, yeah, to be basically free. Girls take many steps on their daily, on, in their daily lives. Uh, but of course, education has been an important step, uh, an important, an important achievement in Afghan women's lives in Iran because also it's a source of empowerment for them and a tool to also resist other restrictions. For example, an educated girl and a very girl about all these norms, all these restrictions can fight them better. So when you started thinking about this research project, why were you drawn to the Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies Department at the University of Edinburgh? Was there anything specific? I know you said that you applied for your master's as well as for your PhD. What made you want to come to Edinburgh? So yeah, I think our department, uh, Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies, is like really great in research and they have the resources and the languages necessary to uh, conduct this research, professors, of course, in the library. Uh, I, I thought that this department has everything I want, like all the support I need to conduct this research. Of course, I also was familiar with the department before, but then I thought this would be great uh, for my research because also it's interdisciplinary, you know, it's about, it's gender studies, it's refugee studies, and it takes place in the Middle East. So I thought it would be a great destination for me. I know an important part of the PhD process is choosing a supervisor. So could you tell me a little bit about how you chose your current supervisor? Actually, I didn't choose my supervisor. So yeah, I just, I got in touch with Andreas because I think we had to uh, send her, send him our proposal. Mm-hmm. And then he, uh, he encouraged me to just apply. And then I applied uh, and I was uh, assigned my supervisor, which was like, one of their best decisions, maybe, to assign oh, me. <laughs> like, I didn't have a say in it, but I'm really happy about it. Uh, like, I get a lot of support from Nassim. Uh, and, uh, yeah, because also she's Iranian and she's familiar with the situation. She understands my research and she has been really helpful. And I've been able to use her experience, her knowledge, and 
her direction in my research. Amazing. Yeah, I know she does some really, Nassim Pakshiraz is your supervisor, right? And yeah, yeah. I, I know she does some really incredible work on like the Persian cinema festivals and everything yeah. like that. Some really fascinating stuff. Yeah, she's an incredible researcher and supervisor. I'm really grateful. Thank, thank you, oh. department, for <laughs> assigning me. <laughs> Whoever's listening, yeah, that's amazing. Um, no, that's so good because it is one of those questions. I think sometimes we get some um, prospective PhD students who are listening to these podcasts and they don't know, should they reach out to a supervisor before or should they wait and see who they're assigned? And it sounds like both ways can really work out for your benefit. So Yeah, yeah, really exactly. You just, I think... Because uh, before reaching out, you need to uh, you need to make sure that the department is good for your research topic, yeah. I think. And then uh, they should be assured that even if they're not assigned the supervisor that they got in touch with, uh, there's somebody that they, it can help them and support them through their research. They should be sure of that. That's a really good point. I think that's really important because sometimes people get really hyper-focused on just working with one professor when yeah, it can exactly. really be that... If the department is a good and supportive department, it should it should work out anyways. Yeah. Um, so kind of going on your student experience, um, besides your supervisor, what do you think has been the most significant part of your time here as a student? Okay, so I, uh, like last year it was online. And of course with COVID, we didn't feel as much as part of the community, you know. But this year with me coming here, and of course we have open somehow like uh, par partially open uh, but I have been able to uh, oh I've been also able to tutor uh, to students yeah to undergraduates and that that has been also incredible experience to see how teaching is uh, done at the university and yeah I've been able to access the library uh, the research rooms the PhD room uh, so all these yeah have been really helpful uh, with my PhD journey because you know PhD is really solitary yeah uh, because like you don't have we don't have any classes so we don't still we don't get to know our fellow PhDs so much because with the COVID and stuff, we didn't have so much in-person interaction with each other. But I feel like still I've been able to get to know people and uh, use this experience uh, positively in a positive way. And of course, uh, I just... I just love being on campus, even if it's just walking around. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's a small campus but it's really beautiful when you're on it all the yeah, buildings exactly. and everything yeah just appreciate the buildings the old especially the old college mm -hmm. yeah and then uh just going around i've i've been enjoying that yeah it's it's nice to feel like you're part of an active student life again i think i was missing that as well yes exactly um, that's amazing. Um, so I know, like you said, you haven't been here that long and that's been kind of COVID, you know, throughout your PhD experience. But since you've been here, have you found a favorite place in Scotland? I asked this to all of my guests just to see if they have any tips of places that listeners might want to check out. Yeah, I haven't had the chance to explore Scotland in general. Yeah. So, but mostly Edinburgh, which is like amazing. Yeah. But, uh, it's a cliche, but my favorite street is Victoria Street. <laughs> it, is, it is a great street. I agree. Yeah. Basically, I like uh, the old town really, like the Royal Mile. But yeah, I like, I like this Victoria Street. And 
I love the ice cream, Mary. Is it like advertisement? <laughs> oh, don't go for it. <laughs> Mary's、oh、milk bar. I love it. <laughs> I still haven't gone there, and I really need to. I think it's. I always see a long line, and I think that's what's deterred me. But if it's worth it, then I need to. to yeah, stop yeah.、By. They have like really fresh and good ice creams. <laughs> oh, amazing! And that's right on grass or the yeah grass market area. So that's it's really close to campus. So next hot day, if it ever gets hot again here. And I will make sure to to stop by. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I'm one of those people that like love ice cream, even if it's like winter and so cold.、Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's very fair. Okay.、Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You've been absolutely fabulous.、Um, thank you so much for having me. It's been like a really great. Experience to talk about my research. You know, sometimes you just want to talk about what、yeah. you are doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's fascinating work that you're doing. So I'm so glad that people will get the chance to hear it. So, thank you so much for、you. this opportunity. Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in again soon.